the reading of Psalm 104. I read through verse 23, so we pick up at 24 to the end. O Lord, how manifold are your works! In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living beings, both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have been. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. And that ends the reading of this portion of God's word. May he help us to truly understand it and apply it. We started in our expedition into the Psalms by looking at Psalms 1 and 2, and I used the image, and it's still true in my mind. We spoke about Psalms 1 and 2 forming something of pillars or columns, shaping or, or directing us into the entrance into the Psalms, and uh, so if you think about it, if you are saying, well, where do you go when you enter? You've got what the godly person is, the person who meditates upon God's word day and night, and he's like this tree, and you have this magnificent uh, description of God's king and kingdom in Psalm 2. If that's forming something of an archway, into a world, uh, where, do, where do you need to start? Well, you need to start where, where, where does the world come from? You start with creation. Where do you head into life? And so we start with this, uh, this tremendous psalm that is a reflection a matter of fact, he uses a term toward the end in verse 34. You'll note it reads in the English here. It says, may my meditation be pleasing to him. What he has done, essentially all scholars think this way, which is a good thing. Uh, it's a meditation most likely on Genesis chapter 1. I don't know if in the reading of that, I'll, I'll make note of it in, in the sermon, but uh, he refers basically to the six days of creation, most clearly to uh, days one through five, but you can easily see how six gets included as well. And he's reflecting on that, and he's astounded 
at what it tells him about who God is. And so that is uh, where we're going to be going tonight. There are other psalms that reflect on creation, sometimes wonderful verses. Uh, I think Calvin used the verse from Psalm 124, the ending of Psalm 124, to start his worship services, um, where he says, Our help is in the name of the Lord. The what? The, The maker of heaven and earth. It's, uh, he would start his, his services with that as a call to worship. Psalm 8 will refer to uh, the creation of mankind particularly, but this is the, one of the fullest and, and certainly the longest of them. So let's begin. The, the first thing I want to say, my first point, is God as creator, that this is the required framework really, to understanding life and even God's redemption. Just so happened this week, uh, Albert Moeller did a, uh, one of his daily briefings, and a fellow recently died by the name of Philip Johnson. Some of you are familiar with him. He was the author of a book entitled Darwin on Trial. He was one of our recent uh, scholars, a tremendously intelligent, educated man, a lawyer by trade, but, but had that uh, mind that just could grasp arguments. And, and um, he wrote this book that really took evolutionary thought to task. And a fellow was writing the obituary on uh, Philip Johnson, one of his good friends, and he made a comment that uh, uh, this person had written about the Trinity. He says that Philip Johnson, in talking with him about his work on the Trinity, said, the broad basic outlines of creation have to be established if Christian theology is to win any kind of hearing. Without the basic assertions of a biblical notion of creation, there is no version of Christian theology that will make any sense, will have any coherence, and will correspond to biblical revelation. What we're doing when we're talking about creation, we're talking about, of course, the Lord bringing the universe and all of it and all of us into existence. And what is the plane, so to speak, upon which redemption takes place? The actual entrance of our Lord, what? We, we call it an incarnation. He comes into the human race. He takes on flesh. He does so on the plane or the platform within the the structure of creation of which we learn tonight. Elements, it is a creation. God has done it. God sustains it, etc. And and I say that because we do not want to think that uh, we do not want to water down 
the biblical teachings of creation in any manner whatsoever. This is not the time to get into whether you are or I am a, you know, a six-day literal creation person, but the point must be made that the Bible teaches this, and it really stands. It's not just that the Bible teaches creation, but it is fundamental. It is foundational. There's a reason that Moses started his five books with the beginning and did so showing clearly that God spoke and brought what was not existent into existence. It is his creation and all that flows from that. We'll pick up on some of those themes. So this is absolutely crucial to living a Christian life in 2019 that we believe God is creator. Second thing, that he not only is creator, but he is revealed in his creation. That is brought out clearly in our psalm. I hope you'll keep that in front of you. We'll repeat and read and reference some of these things. But the psalmist is absolutely ecstatic over God as creator. He sees creation, but he sees more, you might say, than just the tree out there, just the rock, just the grass, whatever. He sees it as a revelation of who God is. In, in verses 1 through 2, you really have reference to two days of creation, the first and the second. Note how he describes it. He says, Lord, you... You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. What is the great word of day one in Genesis 1? Let there be light. And there's light. And then he says, stretching out the heavens like a tent, he lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. What you see, day two in Genesis chapter one uh, speaks about waters and an expanse that separates them. The expanse is not the the like the continental ground or whatever that we see that we have on the globe, the expanse is a separation in the heavens. There are waters above the heavens and there are waters below and there is a firmament and an expanse that separates them. And so the psalmist is looking at that understanding and look at what he says. He says, you stretch the heavens out like a tent and you lay the beams of his chambers on the waters. And so what you want to understand in that is he psalmist would be standing on the earth and he'd be looking around and he'd see the skies and all that. And then he'd realize, what? but wait a minute, there's a separation above all of this. And even above all of that, that's where God's chambers are. How high, how great, how magnificent is this God?
So verse 1 uh, here sums up really the whole of the creative act in one grand thought. The invisible God. This is Alexander McLaren, I think, says he says this, and I, I think he's making a valid point. It says, in the act of creation, the invisible God has arrayed himself in splendor and glory, making visible his attributes. This is the deepest meaning of creation, McLaren says. The universe is the garment of God. And that's the language that's used by the psalmist. You have clothed yourself with splendor and majesty, covering yourself. And he actually uses three other images about creation here too in these opening verses. There's the garment stretching out the heavens like a tent. It's what most English translations use. It's actually a word that more often is translated in Hebrew. Uh, we get the word curtain. You know where curtains were used? They were used in the tabernacle. So suddenly we get thrust with this idea. What if the universe is really the temple of God? Then you have the fact of a chariot that he rides there. And we already mentioned he, we, the upper beams of his chambers. So there are these four images of a garment, of a curtain, of his home, his chambers, of riding the storms on a chariot. The Lord is certainly distinct from his universe. Pantheism is excluded, but he is anything uh, but remote from it. He has absolutely not set it in motion and withdrawn. All this invites us to see the world as something which is... And we're not just... I've struggled with this term because I think you might think of this as just kind of rationalistic or whatever, but that's not the point. The very trees we see, the grass that grows, all, all of creation is charged with His energy and alive with His presence. The very nature miracles that our Lord Jesus did when He was walking this earth proved that. To wake up from the sleep in a boat on a raging sea and say, be still. And it calms. This world in which you live is charged, it is infused with the presence, the activity of the living God showing uh, His work. All right, third thing. The Lord is creator, is the source of ecstatic praise and worship. I've already pointed at that. But the Psalms are here to sing. And they were used in worship. And this psalmist has the similar attitude as Paul does concerning 
the teachings of redemption in Ephesians chapter 1. You'll remember, you open to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 starts out with, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He, he uh, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be, and he just goes on and on and it rambles on for, and that's exactly the same attitude. This psalmist has looked at creation and he says, as we started, bless the Lord, O my soul. Oh, you are very great. And he ends, as we said, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. He is thrilled. His walks through the fields and the woods really get him excited. And rightly so. Rightly so. So God as creator is the source of ecstatic praise and worship. This psalm then should begin to shape our hearts also to teach us to delight in the world that God has made, recognizing it as a gift there's absolutely, and this kind of relates to the first point I made about holding clearly, firmly, without any hesitation to the doctrine of creation. There is absolutely no hint of hesitation, embarrassment, uh, falling back by this psalmist in declaring there is a God and He has created all that is here. He is in a state of thanksgiving and praise for all that God has made. Well, let's press on a little bit. We said that um, day one and two are, are there in verses one through four. Um, Yahweh as creator implies his goodness in sustaining all of life. The, the day that gets the longest treatment is probably the third day verses 5 through 18. If we were to look in Genesis chapter 1, you would see that it is when God limits and puts boundaries on the waters of the earth and mountains arise and plant vegetation begins to come forth. These things happen on day 3. God said, uh, matter of fact, Genesis 1 reads, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. Let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together He called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. It goes on, it says, And there was evening, and there was morning, and the third day. Well, if you look at what he has written here, the psalmist has written, starting from about verse 5 through 13, you get this tremendous treatment of, of how water is moving all over the earth. He says, you set the earth on its foundations, so it's never going to be moved. You covered it with the deep. as with The, the waters stood, you see, they're, they're all over. At your rebuke, they fled. They begin to move into their appropriate places. The mountains are rising. The valleys are sinking. You set, and do you begin to get a sense 
of what kind of God we have by looking at creation. I've mentioned before that Cecilia and I enjoy going to the ocean. Many of you enjoy going to the ocean. What kind of power does it take to keep the Atlantic Ocean within its boundaries? That's exactly what's being said here. And not just the Atlantic, but the Pacific and all of them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they may not cover the earth again. You make springs gush. And then, then you get this sense of, of water because we have bodies of water on the earth, Mississippi, all of that. You know those things. And, and they're flowing all over and trees are growing and, they, and you get birds going by them and, and such as that. You have a concluding verse in verse 13. From your lofty abode, those heavenly chambers earlier referred to, you water the mountains. And are you picking up on it is you and He, this direct involvement of God with what science and what we tend to think are the, just the natural courses of things. No. You water the earth and it's satisfied with the fruit of your work. And then you'll pick up in verse 4, you sense the issue of grass and such. And, and it, there's kind of a little confusion, you might say, because man is mentioned and that comes later, day 6. So this is not precise with Genesis chapter 1. But the plants are growing. And what do the plants do? Well, they give us food and, and, and we can make wine and we can eat bread and, and the animals eat and all those things. But you see what it's telling you is that God is good. God is looking out for His creation. He is providing for every aspect of His creation. I mean, verse 14, you cause the grass to grow. All the dairy farms and things around here, where are those cows going to get that hay? Well, it comes from God. He causes these things to grow. Well, we need to press on. The next thing we'll pick up on is section 19 through 24. And here God as creator means he governs all of it. You'll see the references to the moon and the sun, and they are there. We know that they mark the 24-hour period. We know that the moon was crucial in Judaism, new moon festivals and, and uh, the timing of Pentecost and a lot of the festivals and things like that. And so this is a statement concerning the fact that it is His creation he has every right to govern it and structure it, and He does so. The Lord governs the rhythms of the days and the nights in all of creation. And this relates to the fourth creation day, when the lights are appointed uh, to mark off times and seasons um, that are there. To speak of proper govern governing means that He owns it, he has the power to control it. He, he has the due authority to do so. He is the ruler in detail of creation. 
In verses 24, uh, I, I, before passing this last one, verses 19 through 23, I just love the statement in verse 21. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. The psalmist gives them, gives the young lions this, this you might say almost this consciousness that it doesn't depend on his paws or his teeth or his speed, but you know you can kind of sense, Lord, I need you to provide. This is an astounding uh, psalm. Okay, pressing on. You pick up uh, toward the end here, verses 24 through 30. It comes together involving days four, uh, really, really five and six, really five and six. And it uh, shows how absolutely dependent we are that God and God alone is our life giver. Uh, there's this variety and all-inclusiveness that is mentioned here. How manifold are your works? Look at the, in wisdom, so there again, here's another attribute of God that is revealed in creation, His wisdom. You made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. And look, see how the adjectives, in other words, he's, he's wanting to be absolutely clear that it is all inclusive. The sea is great and wide and it's teeming with innumerable creatures. And, and by the way, it's not just the little ones, but it's the great ones. And you just got to love, you just got to love this this line, there go the ships. Even mankind in his uh, maritime trade and all of that. And then look at Leviathan. You formed it to play in the ocean. Cecilia and I were talking about this. She says, yes, yeah, kind of like it's a Leviathan and is his little rubber ducky in his tub, you know. What kind of God is this? And then you have this, this section, and it is so important for us to grasp. Because this is the truth. Our lives hang absolutely upon God's determinative choices and actions. It's very uh, quick. God's action, response. They all look to you. That includes you. It includes me. There's a reason we pray daily. Give us this day our daily bread to give food and do seed. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. This section puts all of the creatures of earth and sea and sky, including man, all alike are dependent upon God for sustenance and life. J.I. Packer, in his little book, Concise Theology, says this, 
as the world order is not self-created, so it is not self-sustaining as God is. The stability of the universe depends on constant divine upholding. God is always presently active in his creation. The stability of the universe depends on constant divine upholding. This is a specific ministry of the divine son, quoting from Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1. And without it, every creature of every kind, ourselves included, would cease to be. That is how present, active, wise, powerful, governing, sovereign, your God is. Ultimately, there is only one reason you traveled here tonight and are here conscious and alive tonight. It is because of the present life-giving of your good God. I need to conclude. I want to do it this way. Uh, One of the fellows that has meant a lot to me in my study of the Psalms is Alec Motier. Um, his devotional on this ends this way. I want you to listen carefully. He says, It is because it is His world that we can live in it with easy minds. We cannot see what may come over the hills tomorrow. But we do know that whatever happens will happen in His world where He rules and reigns and where nothing happens without His say-so. He drives his point home this way. Learn it, my friends. Learn it. Learn to look out of your window and see your God. thought about doing that, but then I thought with lights on and darkness outside, you wouldn't see anything. But, I, but I'm dead serious. I, ever since reading that, I have been trying to practice that. Is your God? Think about the questions that are answered in this simple application. Is your God alive and does he exist? Look out your window. Is your God present and near? Look out your window. Is your God powerful? You can say it with me. Look out your window. Who rules all these things? Is your God wise? Look out your window. Is your God sovereign and in control of his world and therefore your life, no matter what is going on? Look out your window and realize that. Is your God good? We can look out our window and see the truth to all of these things. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you For this ancient teaching, we feel like we've only begun to scratch something of the surface of it. 
we make the statement, the Apostle Paul, we live and have our being. We live, move, and have our being in you. Lord, thank you that you taught us these things. This is the lengthy version, really, Lord Jesus, of what you taught when you said, be anxious for nothing. But look at the birds of the air. They don't gather. Lord, you feed them. Are we not more worth more than the birds of the air? Look at the flowers of the field, which are here today and gone tomorrow. And yet Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed as them. Oh, Lord, our faith is small. Help us to look with faith at the world you have made and the world that you presently, actively sustain and give life to and control. And in the regularity of the sun rising and the moon going through its phases, the stars in the heavens, you have given us special promises concerning redemption in Christ, saying if those stars and sun and moon pass away, then we might could doubt that we truly have salvation in Christ. Their very existence hanging in the skies tell us that our Lord lived and died and rose again and is victorious. Help us now as we seek to celebrate that truth in his supper. In his name we pray. Amen.